And as we continue our worship together, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 John. 2 John. For those of you who have been with us for a long time, you know that we just finished 1 John. And I figured since we had already done all the background information anyway, why not go ahead and cover this part of the inspired scriptures as well? So 2 John, if you're visiting today or you didn't bring your Bible, in the blue Bible you'll find that on page 1025. I would encourage you to turn there so you can follow along with us. Second John. We will be looking at uh, the entire epistle in, in one message. Uh, But to start us off, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. We'll cover the rest of it as we get through the sermon, but let's keep our introductory focus on the first three verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I'd like to begin this morning by telling you a tale of two churches. I want you to imagine with me a small suburb out of a major city somewhere in the heart of the Americas. In this town, there's only a few stoplights and two churches. The first is called Bible-Believing Baptist. Their name itself will indicate something about their personality and flavor, if you will. The second is called Charity Community Church. Again, also indicating its unique persona. Bible-Believing Baptist, Charity Community Church. If you had to choose between the two, which one would you attend? I know you need more than the name, so I'll fill in some of the details. Bible-believing Baptist. If you look at their website, because that's what everybody does this day, to check out a church, you'd notice a couple things. You would notice some pretty detailed doctrinal statements, not very many pictures, and a library replete with sermons that last over an hour long. Now, listening to them, they're frequently appealing to the text of Scripture. It seems pretty thorough, pretty meaty, pretty satiating, uh, but almost like just a really healthy salad. You know it's good for you, but it's just not that enjoyable. You go and decide to visit the church. And as you visit, you notice the music. The hymns are dense and thick and slow so that you can actually think about all of the deep theology contained therein. Uh, The the sermon itself is, again, healthy, (laughs) heavy, long. And then the people. One of the things that you notice about the people there, even though no one really speaks to you, is that they all have a notebook in which they studiously take notes throughout the entire message. Now, nobody is rude or unkind. It's just they take notes of the sermon. They never take note of your name or your number 
or do they ever really seem to care that you were there in the first place? But doctrinally sound nonetheless, that is Bible-believing Baptist. Now, let me tell you a little about Charity Community. You look at their website, it's pretty nice. It is replete with pictures of people hanging out with one another. Sidearm hugs and smiles abound. It just seems like a warm and friendly place. There's no detailed doctrinal statement, even though what you do read isn't unorthodox by any means. You also notice that there's a pretty heavy events calendar. It seems like they have a social function for everything that happens to be going on within the next month. They want you to be there at those events. You you don't get any of the dense hymns, but you will admit that the singing was enthusiastic. The people seemed to have loved what it was that they were singing about. And they are singing indeed about Jesus. The sermon, while shorter and biblical, was more applicable, more relevant, more engaging than the other, but still faithful to Scripture. The people, they're not note-takers. You didn't see a notebook in the place, but they are name-takers because you had several people approach you after the service, ask your name and number, and see if they could get together with you at some point when the week was over. Thus concludes our tale. With the information received to this point, If you were moving to this one-horse town in the heart of the Americas, where do you go to church? Why that church? Which one do you prefer? Which one should you prefer? Some of you in here are already, you've got it nailed down. I am at Bible-believing Baptist. This is the place for me. Knowing this congregation like I do, I know that some of us in the room have a penchant for sound theology and doctrine, and you don't mind hour-long expositions. You like to read heavy books on Christian truth on a regular basis. And for you, the lack of warmth is just something that they can grow out of. But in the meantime, this is the foundation. They've got it right. This is the church that I need to be at. And that's fair. What was not fair, though, is the suspicion with which you naturally view the other church. (laughs) For those who love truth, sometimes they get suspicious of churches that focus on love. Something seems too shallow and superficial about it. But then there's another group. Even in our midst today, some, I think, would actually choose Charity Community Church. It was sound, it was biblical, but you just love people. You want to be around them, they want to be around each other. It seems like the church is a family, not just a lecture hall. It's practical, it's warm. And my only warning to those of you who would prefer charity community would be that you do not look at Bible-believing Baptists with suspicion. Because it's easy to say those religious hypocrites with their cold formality, I don't know why anybody would attend a church like that. And then there are some of you in this room who quite honestly don't care. As long as there is a nursery, kids programs, and someone else your own age, that's the church that you want to be at. And that's okay. (laughs) Some of you didn't answer the question at all because you're thinking this is a setup. (laughs) The reason I tell you the story is because 
whether you answered it or not, we all have some kind of preference on the church that we want to be a part of. We all have some kind of preference on not only the church that we want to be a part of, but the church that we would want to contribute to. Some of you are already a part of this church. And as you hear me talk about this, these differences of truth and love, you're thinking, man, I wish we had a little more truth. I wish we had a little more love. There's an aspiration in your heart, something that resonates with you, that you're like, I want a little more of this or that, and that's great. Some of you may actually be visiting, and you're still trying to figure out a church. It's pretty popular this time of year. That's great. I'm glad you're here. But what type of church do you look for? What are you looking for? What should you look for? Some of you are suspicious of all churches. Maybe you're a non-Christian here today, and you don't understand why churches function the way they do. If you're in any of those positions, which should be all of us, 2 John is tailor-made just for you. You will remember that in 1 John, for those of you who have been in the study, John emphasizes both truth and love. The truth of Christ, it's got to be clear. The love for the brethren, it's got to be abundant. He's saying that both of those things should be in place. And it seems as we look at this epistle that he's given it some time and that the churches that he was originally concerned for are about to face a certain threat and he wants to prepare them for that threat by reinforcing those two mainstays of every church, no matter what it is, truth. Now, when you're reading this for the first time, especially those first three verses, it's easy to be a little confused because you see that opening line, uh, the elder to the elect lady. And you're thinking, what is this? Who is the elder? Well, that's a great tendency to not name himself. You go through the entire book of John, and you never know who wrote the book except for external testimony later. And the same thing in 1 John. He doesn't identify himself. It's just his habit And so here, by the time he's written this, it's around A.D. 90, and John is the last apostle standing. He is the elder statesman of Jesus Christ, if you will. The rest of them have died. And so he sees himself as the elder, the the pastor, if you will, the, the older one who has the right to call them, what? Little children, right? He constantly is referring to them as little ones and little children. He he speaks to them in a fatherly way. But to whom is he speaking? You think, oh, there's some nice old lady that he's writing to and her grandchildren. But (laughs) there's only one problem with that. You need to recognize that the church throughout the New Testament is commonly put in figurative speech, the figurative speech that describes the church as a woman. We do this in our own day. Uh, You know the song, God Bless America. Uh, God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her with a light. Well, whatever. <laughs> it's not the national anthem. It's God bless America. Okay, don't, don't judge me. But her, we refer to America as a her, uh, Lady Liberty, or back in the 1800s, Lady Columbia. This was a representation of this entity that is America. In a similar way, the church is referred to as a woman throughout the Bible. Think about it, the bride of Christ, right? It is a feminine entity insofar as he here is referring to a local church and her children, which by that he means her members. He said, Justin, this seems like a stretch and pretty creative. 
Well, the grammar of the passage actually bears this out. Because you can't see it in English, unfortunately. I'm telling you, we need a southern translation that uses you and y'all. Because when you get to verses 6 and 8 and 10, John, speaking to the elect lady, is talking about y'all doing this and y'all doing that. He's not talking to an individual. He is talking to a group of individuals that belong to a local church, and he is particularly concerned that they are going to face a new threat. There's going to be a new attack on truth. And even though that new attack on truth is coming, even though truth will be attacked, love still must be the focus of that ministry. Love must be obeyed. Truth must be protected. And thus, he brings the two ideas together. The text today helps all of us who are trying to evaluate the health of a church, all of us who want to know what Jesus would commend in a church by pointing out to us that a real church, a healthy church, a true church is built on truth and behaves in love. Or I could say it another way. It is established on truth. It is expressed in love. It is not either or, it is both and. This is what Jesus values in a church. This is what we should value in a church. And so whether you're a visitor here today evaluating a future church, or whether you're a member here today pursuing a certain agenda for this church, or whether you're a non-Christian who doesn't understand the church, I want you to get the biblical picture, truth and love. Let's look at both of these in turn. What kind of church would Jesus commend? Jesus would commend a church that practices love established in truth. Jesus would commend a church that practices love established in truth. The elder to the elect lady, verse 1, and her children, notice this, whom I love in truth. Notice that. He doesn't just love them. He loves them in truth. Truth has brought them together into a loving relationship. What is the truth that he is referring to? It is the truth of the gospel. It is the truth of Jesus Christ. Later on in this letter, he will refer to it as the teaching, the teaching of Jesus. Because they all have believed this same message, they have entered into a love relationship. And it isn't just pastor and people, by the way. Notice that John adds that it is also not I only but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Isn't that beautiful? Because of their reception of gospel truth, all of a sudden, not just John and the people, but all believers everywhere have entered into this unique, loving relationship. And what you have to get or you're going to miss something really important, is that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is what created the relationship. You got it? He says that this is an eternal relationship. Once you truly receive this truth, it will abide with you and stay with you and us forever. It is something that is abundant. And notice John's tone here. He's not angry with them. He's not frustrated. Notice the expression of of, of prayer that he points toward them, verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be, not has been, but will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Now notice again, in what? Truth and love. 
You see how John just keeps weaving these things together? For him, they are not separable. For someone who will, in that final day that we just sang about, experience God's grace, which is his undeserved kindness, someone who will know that peace, that means no hostility between us and God, someone who knows God's mercy, not getting the judgment they do deserve. He's foregone that because he poured it out on his son instead of us. For someone who's going to enjoy that, they're going to enjoy it forever, and they do so because of God's love and the truth that he has shared through Jesus Christ. Truth creates the loving relationship. And John's encouraged by this. He is confident about it. And if he was speaking to us today, you would be pleased with his smiling demeanor. He is so assured of the ultimate outcome of this church. He knows that they will persist in truth. He knows that they will persist in love. And he's even called them in action. Look at verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children, those church members, walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, when I, what an awesome thing. Parents, have you ever experienced this before? You teach those same lessons over and over and over again to your children about being nice to one another and being kind to one another, and it seems like unless you are physically forcing them to be kind to one another, it's not happening. That's just my kids, I guess. But have you ever like been like, cleaning or you go upstairs and you walk by their room and then all of a sudden like, you like, see them like, playing nicely with one another and sharing things? How does it make you feel as a parent? Like home run. <laughs> parent of the year, they did it on their own. John is experiencing this same type of pride. He knows that even though he's not with that church anymore in particular, he's from a distance. Somehow, in his journeyings and his goings-on, he, he found or stumbled across some of these church members, and the Greek word for found is eureka, from which we get eureka. He found it. He stumbled across it. He was happy to discover that they were not only knowing truth, but listen to this, they were living it out. It's not just that their doctrinal statement was correct, but their, their duty like fell in line with this biblical truth, and he is so excited about that. And even with that, though... Even though they're doing a great job, even though he's hearing good things about them, look at verse 5. He's still concerned. And now, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John is saying, even though you're doing a good job, church, you are still going to have to remember this command. It is an easy one to forget. You must love one another. Now, let's be clear. Love one another means actually sacrificing ourselves for the spiritual well-being of other Christians. This isn't just a general command to love every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet, although we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. When John says love one another, in context, he's talking about believers. Believers need to continue to remember the command to love one another. And then he points out in verse 5 what this exactly looks like. And this is helpful for us all. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I'm writing a new commandment, but the one that we had had from the beginning, that we love one another. Well, thanks, John. What does this love look like? Verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. 
This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Pause there for a moment. When you think of love, when you think of loving other people, do you typically think of commandments? We like love to be a spontaneous and free-flowing thing. Something that just emanates from the heart. It just radiates outward toward other people. It's this deep and abiding connection that we kind of just randomly have with other people. And yet, he defines love differently. He says, this is love, that you obey my commandments. Commandments don't seem loving. They don't seem warm or soft. They seem cold and hard. I think of those tablets carved out on stone. (laughs) Those are commandments. What does that have to do with love? How does that help us become more loving? Well, listen, friends, I want you to know that God's definition of love is greater than one that we could ever imagine on our own. If you just think through some of the more popular commandments, for example, I want you to think about what breaking them would look like for a relationship and what obeying them would look like for a relationship. Let me just use a few examples. Think of envy, covetousness. Forbidden in the Ten Commandments. If someone is breaking that, if they are covetous of another person in the fellowship, they're desiring their stuff, how will that relationship be? They're going to view them as an enemy. They're going to view them as someone who possesses the stuff that they deserve. Whether it be the fact that they have children and this person doesn't, or whether it be the fact that this person has stuff and this person doesn't, or whether the fact that this person has a job and this person doesn't, it will not be a good relationship if covetousness runs free. Or think of another one, just stealing, (laughs) stealing, this this idea of taking from other people. Imagine a church member who works for another church member, and during that time, instead of actually putting in the hours that he says he's putting in, he's checking social media through the day, and then his employer comes in and finds out that this guy has been robbing from him. What's the relationship going to be like? Is that really love? Or let me give you one more. I mean, I'm just hitting the basics. Uh, Commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Just think about what it's like for church members, men especially, to be let loose in lust toward other people in the church. They don't have a pure mind. They view other women in the church in a perverted way. If that is happening, I'm telling you, friends, that is not love. Because now you have a young man in the church who could actually be preying on women in the church, and this would be a disgusting thing. This is not love. But imagine the reverse. A church where the young man is characterized by purity, he sees the other sisters in the church as indeed sisters in Christ. He will love them well. Or imagine the one who is resolved not only to steal, but to work hard. And he is not just take, not taking time from his employer, but he's actually doing good work and solid work, and they enjoy a solid relationship with one another because the employer trusts the employee. That's love for one another. And then you can imagine the person who's not only not just not jealous, but they are actively celebrating the good gifts that God gives other people. Imagine how that draws them into one another in fellowship. Do you see the difference between the two? This is a basic little analogy, but I think it's a good one for you to remember. If you've never been in any form of marriage counseling before, let me just give you like the oldest trick of the trade. You tell the couple that's struggling 
to love God, to focus on the vertical part of their relationship, and as they do that, it will help the horizontal part of their relationship. And then here's the trick. You draw a little um, triangle on a sheet. <laughs> you, you put their name on the left side, the guy's name on the left side. You put the, the lady's name on the right side. You put God at the top, and then you tell them if they both focus on getting closer to God, what's happening? They're getting closer to one another. John draws us no triangles, at least I don't have any in my Bible, but essentially that's what he's saying. As you obey the clear commands of God, vertical, you are getting closer to God's people, horizontal. You see the relationship between the two? And John is saying, do not forget this. Let me keep this simple for you. Some of you in here today are detailed people. You're like, I don't want the big picture. You tell me exactly what I need to do and when I need to do it. If you're that kind of person, just read your Bible, write down every command you see in there, and then do it. You'll be loving other people well. Some of you are like, no, I don't want all those details. Just give me the big picture. Hey, look, let me help you out. Love one another. There's your big picture. Either way, you are being what God wants you to be in regard to His church. He says a church is a place where people love one another. They love one another. I would only point this out and even make this case because we do live in an age in which love is so often questioned. We live in a world that wants to redefine love. Whether it be the the sociologist or the psychologist or the secular musician, everybody wants to give a definition of love. And the church even, I mean, the the world looks on the outside and they're like, "I, I like the fact that a church loves one another. But then, When the harder things happen, when the tough love takes place, they're like, who are you to do this? Why would you ever confront someone over their sexual sin? Why would you ever make someone feel bad about something that they do that's a habit of theirs? Right? It's subjective love. Someone else has defined it, and yet... We know, friends, that the Bible itself is God's definition of love, and it is a good one. When it says, encourage one another and pray with one another, yes, that's good, that's love. But when it says, rebuke one another and admonish one another and seek the spiritual good of one another, yes, that is good too. I would maybe encourage you to think of love, at least biblically, less like contemporary art, and more like classical art. Maybe you've never taken an art appreciation class. I haven't either, if it makes you feel any better. But I do know the difference between contemporary art and classical art. Contemporary art is one of those things where when you see it, you have no idea what it is. It's a weird shape, a bunch of weird colors, and for some of you who are more fancy and have like invested thousands of dollars in contemporary art, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. classical art. Now, there's something that's beautiful. I know beauty's in the eye of the beholder, but what I like about classical art is you know what they're trying to communicate. They're trying to portray reality. The painting is intended to make something look real. It isn't fuzzy, amorphous, it's clear, it's objective, it's solid. Biblical love, friends, that we get when we're around certain people, that's 
contemporary art. It is classical. It is clear. There are good standards of love being practiced in a church, and they are recorded in God's Word. Does that make sense? And so whenever it is we, we want to know if, if we're where we need to be or if we're living this out in, in a good way, we, we read the Scriptures generally or a helpful tool for you guys. It's, again, it's a tool. It's not inspired, but that church covenant that we read together last week as a church family. If you actually look at the paper copy of that thing, we list all these obligations that we believe that we have, like summed up in Scripture, and then there's these footnotes with Bible verses down at the bottom, and you can see where every one of these things come from, from the Scriptures. Sometimes if I ever just want to analyze my own spiritual health, I can just read through that thing, and I'm like, oh, I I could work on this, and I'm doing well here. But that whole document is just basically an outline of love. This is what it looks like. This is what love looks like in a local church. And so here, I want to address kindly all of you who would have chosen to go to Bible-believing Baptist. You know who you are. Listen, I appreciate your commitment to doctrinal truth, but we must make sure that the truth doesn't stay on the page or in the notebook, but that it ultimately culminates in practical love to other believers. It is not either or, it is both and. And then for those of you who would choose the other church, charity, community, I want you to know that whatever this love is that you think you feel, you better make sure that it is tied back to the objective, unchanging Word of God. So, what kind of church would Jesus commend? Well, uh, Jesus would commend a place that, that practices love established in truth. That's in verses 1 through 6. It practices love established in truth. But that's not all. Jesus would also commend a church that protects truth expressed in love. Jesus would also commend a church that protects truth expressed in love. So the, the, the epistle is divided in two, 1 through 6 and then 7 through 13. Notice how he begins to change the tone here. He says, for, I've told you all this stuff about love, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ and the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, I'll stop at verse 7 for a moment because I want you to understand that He's saying, all right, there's a problem, guys. You you need to keep loving one another in truth because there is an attack headed your way. The foundation of the love that you enjoy, the truth of the gospel itself, is about to be under attack, and you need to understand that you not only need to practice love, but you also must protect truth. Don't let termites get in this foundation. Protect the truth. What is the truth in particular that needs to be protected? John is very specific, and I I don't think we should just gloss over it. He says in verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those, notice this, who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, I would point out two things to you. First, he is not saying deceived people are out in the world. He's saying there are deceivers. You know the difference between active and passive, right? So, a deceived would be like the customer. A deceiver is the salesman. 
You ever met anybody involved in a pyramid scheme? Deceiver. <laughs> I've ran into one of those, by the way. I was at Barnes & Noble. I'm like 17 years old. And this dude is like, I'm looking at some books, and he makes this comment on a book. I'm thinking, oh, like, what a really nice guy. And then he's like, You're, you look like a smart guy. You want to save some money, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a smart guy. I want to save some money. <laughs> he's like, let's go grab a coffee. And he buys me a coffee. I'm like, wow, what are the, this is the nicest guy ever. And then he like breaks out a brochure with a little pyramid thing. And I, I still didn't know what it was. Like nobody had ever warned me about Amway when I was a kid. And again, sorry if you work for Amway. And so like I, I do a follow-up meeting because he's telling me about church. He, he knows the church that I knew. And I'm like, I was thinking, oh, like, oh, great brothers in Christ. He's helping me with my stewardship. <laughs> Look. That dude was selling something. That is a deceiver. He wanted to make some money off of me. I'm only pointing out that distinction because what you're going to see in this text is going to sound pretty hostile. You're going to be like, my goodness, this seems like a rather rude way to be toward my non-Christian friends. He is not talking about your non-Christian friends. He is talking about the active propagators of error. So that's the first thing. He's saying deceivers, not deceived. Second, and this is where things are so subtle. In what way are they deceivers? It isn't through what they say. It's through what they don't say. Do you notice that in the text? He says they are not confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the dangerous part. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is truly God, truly man, the one who was sent from God to die and to be buried and to be risen again for our righteousness. This Jesus is glossed over. They ignore the Jesus that we preach from the Bible. They won't come and say, you shouldn't believe that. They're going to emphasize something else And that is so hard. And that's why he says, you better look out. You better look out because they will intentionally try to gloss off the person of Jesus. I won't read the entire quote from last week, but I think Calvin's words do bear repeating in this. He said, nothing Satan so much, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists or fog with view of obscuring Christ because this opens up every kind of falsehood. Do you not see that? I mean, your own experience with other people, I mean, isn't that typically the way that it goes? They're just emphasizing something else. And if they do talk about Jesus, they gloss over it or they emphasize his humanity or they emphasize the fact that he was created or that he's the son of God. He's not really God. I mean, those are the kind of subtleties that are are being propagated on a regular basis. And in light of this, John says in verse 7, excuse me, verse 8, watch yourselves. (laughs) Look out. Guard yourselves. Now, here's where things get plural. Because again, us being good old individualistic Americans, we come to this thing and we see, watch yourselves, and we're like, all right, I need to look out for me, myself, and my own. (laughs) And yet, 
sorry, I know you hate this grammatically. He's saying, watch y'all selves. It, it is, look out for everyone in the group. This is where things get plural. You guys, look out for one another. It isn't just about you and your own little spiritual kingdom. He is worried about the work of Christ as a whole in that church coming under attack. And so, yeah, we're looking out for ourselves, but we're also looking out for others around us. And he's saying this is a group effort. We do not want to lose any ground here. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. There there are many who will be targeting this flock, flocks just like Faith Bible Church. And these are from the deceiver. They are of the Antichrist. They, They represent his spirit. This is a major attack coming out on the church. And he says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Andrew and I were speaking on, I think, Tuesday about this very text. And we're doing some, some sermon stuff together, and I actually asked him, I said, Are there, is there anything that you see here in the text that seems confusing, that you don't know? Because um, I've already been studying it some. And he said, well, that verse kind of scares me. <laughs> because it sounds like that they could somehow lose their salvation if they don't watch themselves. And the more I thought about it, I could see why some would think that. But here's what we need to be sure of. When you look at verse 8, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward, there's some theology behind that. All right? There's, there's two theological points that need to be made. First is the metaphor of working together in a church. Paul often refers to the church as God's building, God's temple. And guess what he says? He says that we're all, as members of the church, working together on this building. I don't have time to go to it, but I would encourage you to write down 1 Corinthians 3 and look at verses 10 through 15. He says that we are God's building and we're working together to build up other people in Jesus Christ. The metaphor of a building for the church, both universal and local, is all throughout the New Testament. But that's the noun, building. There's a verb, build up, edify. We use it all the time. We don't even recognize it. But when we talk about, hey, I, need, I was edifying so-and-so, I was trying to build a point construction project together. The building up of Faith Bible Church isn't what you see in this balcony or in this fellowship hall. The building up of Faith Bible Church is what you and I are doing together to help jointly, not just the pastors, but us jointly making each other more like Jesus. So he's, he, he's assuming a theology of work. We are working together. Now, reward. Guess what? You may have never thought of this. Some of you are newer Christians, and I'm happy to bring this to your attention. There is a judgment that you will face one day that will not, hear me, will not be about your righteousness, but will be about your reward. Did you know that? The righteousness thing has already been taken care of by Jesus. You are righteous in God's sight. When you think of judgment, the judgment that you may face before God one day, if you're in Christ, if you're born again, you don't fear that judgment. He will declare you not guilty. You will enjoy his presence forever. And yet, Paul will often speak of another judgment in which 
those who are already in Christ will experience their, their deeds being judged, whether they be good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, again, you'll see some of that. It's also spoken of in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 12. And this is not a judgment of retribution. This is a judgment of reward. And as we faithfully labor, and as we build up other people in Christ, I don't know how it works. I don't know the point system. I don't know how it all falls out, but this is what I do know. As we labor to help other people become more like Jesus, God looks on that and says, well done, good and faithful servant, and he will reward his people in some special way above that which they already are going to receive because of Jesus. That's pretty cool. And so with those two theological points firmly in place, you then understand that he's not saying, all right, guys, you better watch out or you're going to like end up in hell. He's saying, you better watch out because this work that you're doing could be eroded. If you're not looking out for other people, if you're not making sure that they're building their lives upon Jesus Christ, you're going to run into a problem and everything that you've been trying to do is going to be a waste. If those people that you're ministering to aren't building their life upon the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, that is your ministry. That is what you're laboring for. And that is a big deal. It was probably 10 years ago in my hometown, there was a rash of arsons committed against churches. This guy burnt down uh, a, a beautiful, huge Baptist church in the middle of town. It had been around for a hundred years. And then he went to another church a week later and tried to burn down another one. We had never heard of anything like this. And coming from Greenville, North Carolina, with you know, literally a thousand churches, it seems like the whole church community was a buzz. And I, I remember this, I mean, you, it sounds so remote, but after that second burning, we had guys signing up to hang out at the church, pulling shifts to make sure that the church was protected until this guy was caught. And so I remember that the particular night uh, when it was actually, like, here everybody is, like, locked and loaded, like, ready to go, <laughs> walking around with, like, baseball bats and tactical flashlights, you know, like, just roaming the halls, like, making sure that no one's getting in. But there was a clear sense of purpose, a heightened alertness, like a readiness knowing that this guy's out there. Eventually, he would be caught. The fear of arson drifted away. What John is telling us here is that the arsonist is out there. He is seeking to burn this thing to the ground. And the way that he does it is by getting you to focus on anything other than Jesus. So watch out. Be alert. That heightened sense of vigilance should be a regular thing for us. And you would naturally ask, well, how do I protect? What do I do? Do I carry around a baseball bat and a gun and a flashlight? No. <laughs> I would say that you would serve others well in this way as you continue to study Christ clearly for yourself. That's the first thing. You need to be crystal clear on who Jesus is and why he matters. If, if Jesus Christ is a vague and fuzzy notion to you, you get that he's important, you just don't really know all that much why, you really need to dial in. 
And if you want resources on that or you want to know where to begin, talk to a pastor. That's what we're here for. But I would encourage you not only to investigate Christ more thoroughly, but I would encourage you, listen, this is where it gets really practical, inquire of Christ to others. You're having this conversation, you know church is going to be let out in a few minutes, and you all want to have a spiritual conversation with one another. Here's how things go. Not, hey, how's everything going? Here's a question for you. How are things with you in Christ? How's your love for Christ right now? Or if you just ask a more general question, how are you doing spiritually? You know what you're listening out for? Christ. And if they could talk about their spiritual walk without mentioning Jesus at all, well, maybe something is subtly undermining their allegiance to him. John says, watch out for yourselves. But he doesn't leave it there. He actually will give us something more. It isn't just protect yourselves, but he also says, don't. Don't, this is a, a, a forbidding thing. Not accidentally, do not accidentally promote false teaching. Do not accidentally promote false teaching. This is verses 10 and 11. Notice this. Here's the scenario. John says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now this is the classic, right? Because most people read this and they immediately think about Jehovah's Witnesses on a Saturday. I'm not letting them in my house. I'm not answering that door. But I just back, back it off a little bit. I'm not saying that you have to answer the door, but let's just get this thing in context. John here is saying, he's talking to a church, remember? And churches in these days meet in houses. <laughs> he's saying, don't let them into your house. It, it is still the plural pronoun, y'all. He's not talking about you individually. Y'all, don't let them in. Don't give them an official platform to speak. Don't receive them. Don't show them hospitality. Don't give them money. Don't send them on their way. Don't support them in any way. Don't pray for them. He says, don't even greet them. By greeting them in those days, a greeting for us is just a rather banal thing. We say, hello, and it means nothing other than I acknowledge your existence. But actually, in that day, people would wish grace or peace or God's mercy. Things like Godspeed to one another. It, it was something spiritual, actually, to greet because they were so immersed in the theology of their day. He's saying here, don't just like accidentally just send them on their way and give them the impression that you're okay with everything that they're doing. Don't pray God's blessings on them. Don't tell them that you support what they do. This is a passage that is primarily for churches just like this one. So, Justin, well, what does this leave me to do with my Jehovah's Witness proselytizer next Saturday. Well, that's a conscience issue. I would encourage you not to speak with them unless you have a relationship with them already. This is, this is not biblical, by the way. This is just my advice. The reason why I wouldn't receive someone into my home, even though I don't think that the text forbids that, is because of the impression that it would have on other people who know that I'm a Christian and I've received this person into my home, and I don't want to be linked with them in any way. I don't mind having a conversation offline somewhere else and meeting them, but to receive them into my home communicates something to my neighbors around me. Second of all, if you don't feel spiritually confident to handle that conversation because it's going to be a pretty dicey one, again, leverage a pastor and say, hey, I've actually established a relationship with a Jehovah's Witness person in my community. 
I want to talk to them more. Can you help me out? And we can do it together. Does that make sense? But what he's ultimately saying is don't dismiss this doctrine. Don't just say, oh, well, they mean well and send them on their way. He's saying this is an erosion to the fundamental truths of the gospel, and you must protect the truth. And then notice his relational end, verses 12 through 13. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Isn't it funny how the technology of the day that John was already tired with, I think if John was around today, he would not be sending you text messages. (laughs) Unless he had to, as he did in this case. But you know what he preferred? Face-to-face communication. He actually loved these people. I love this like little point, because in the inspired text, we have this battle-hardened apostle saying, all right, fight it on every level. But at the same time, we're in relationship. We love one another. This isn't just some battle. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and so let us continue to protect one another in this way. And then even the other church gets involved. It says in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. So, would Jesus commend a church that protects truth? Oh yeah. Would Jesus commend a church that practices love? Not for sure. But here's the question though. In light of John's letter here, it would seem that both Bible Baptist Bible-believing Baptist, and Charity Community Church, both have something to commend. Right? So, so which one do we go to? Where, where do we end up? Truth? Love? And you're too smart for that. Balance? Balance? Is balance really what we're looking for? I mean, I would see the logic. No no one would want anyone in this church to be some type of prickly, ivy-towered theologian. At the same time, we wouldn't want somebody to be a spineless social jellyfish. We, We get that there are certain extremes to be avoided. Some should stand more firmly on truth. Some should sacrifice more selflessly. I get that, but... I want to point out something, that there may be a better way. I don't think that John here is calling us to balance. I think John is calling us to wholeness. There is a difference between the two. Balance implies that we could have too much of one in light of the other. You know the old story about Goldilocks and the three bears? What was her problem? She wanted balance. It was either too big, too small, too hot, too cold, too firm, too soft. Don't adopt the Goldilocks mentality to truth and love, friends. There's no such thing as too much love or too much truth. We don't balance these things out. They belong to one another. We're looking for wholeness. Wholeness demands that we need much more of both. I would think of it this way. Think about your house. You want a strong foundation and a comfortable house. The strong foundation in no way harms the comfort of the house. In fact, it helps it. There's some security there because you know this thing's going to last. Nobody picks between strong roots and abundant fruit. You want wholeness. You want both. 
And so also here in the church that we treasure and value, if we will align our priorities of Christ, we want love. But we want love that's rooted and grounded in truth. That is the basis for it all. There is no breaking these things apart. And so for those of you who gravitate to the truth, and there are many, I love you, I do, and I pray that you would continue to live it out in love. There may be some times where you need to get off your blog, stop writing in your journal, and go spend some time with another believer. (laughs) But keep defending truth. We need you. For those of you who gravitate toward love, I am so excited that you show this outpouring of affection and practical service to people. But you know what? There actually may be times where you need to spend a little less time with people and spend more time with the person of Jesus Christ. Thinking deeply about His Word, His truth, so that you can minister to them effectively. Keep doing what you're doing. But we need both. And some of you here, you have no relationship with truth or love because you have never responded to God the Father by receiving Jesus Christ, God the Son. And friend, I I want you to know that that is is the only way you will ever experience the love, the truth, the certainty promised in these Scriptures is through Jesus alone. You turn from your sin, you trust in Him, and you just receive Him. You you, you rely on Him as opposed to yourself. And that is when you get the surety. That is when you get the steadfast love that's promised in this text. It is through Christ. And so we move from truth to love. That is the church that Jesus Christ himself would commend.